Howdy, all. Welcome back for our next installment of Seeking God in the Whirlwind. Uh, it's been a great series. I, I want to really thank Mark publicly just for the opportunity to talk with him. Mark, I know we, we try to do a lot of Q&A, trying to learn from the people we're talking to, but I learned a lot from you just in the way you shape things and frame things, and it's been a good experience. We look forward to a couple more. We've got um, uh, an esteemed colleague here today. We'll introduce him in just a second. We've got at least two more, Mark. Are we, is that where we're at? Uh, we've, we will be able to run out the month. Okay. Yeah, so we should have one more for, I think well, there's two more weeks left in May. So yeah, yeah, we have two more coming up. Yeah, yeah. And then we might do a tie up podcast and then um, Mark, good idea. Just can we get together and say what we've learned because it's been a very learning experience. I think that's mm -hmm. what's defined it for me. But yeah. um, what, what I've gotten out of this and what I'm excited to do today when we talk to our guest is just how God has been teaching us to learn to navigate, negotiate this space. And I think when you and I started, it was a little easier in my mind. We're going to negotiate between some of these difficulties, you know, we can call it secularism or we can come up. So, but I'm realizing the navigation is far more in my heart that, that mm. I've got to navigate to my own tendencies to seek after idols that make me happier than seeking after Christ, um, who is my identity. And um, I really appreciate all our guests and to, and of course our guest today, uh, a colleague of mine at Lancaster Bible College, I'm very um, honored to call colleague. Uh, we've been working together for several years, uh, Ling Dintz, uh, who teaches in the social work department, Dr. Ling Dins, now that she's defended successfully her dissertation, um, has come to us several years ago and along with um, um, two other professors, Kurt Miller and uh, Mary Yeager, um, they hold together the social work department uh, at our college. And um, I want to say to you, Ling, before we begin, that you've been a, a great encouragement to me, um, not only because you're very thoughtful and you challenge me very deeply, uh, but you're such a winsome person. Uh, you've got those of you that know Ling, and I don't, I don't have to say anybody you know, out here knows her. I'm, I'm not even doing it justice, but uh, Ling is just an extremely positive, thoughtful person, um, very caring. I, I've gone down the hallway before in a mad rush off the class, and she's in a rush, and I say, hey, Ling, and she actually stops, turns around. Hey, Dan. <laughs> Always intentional about checking in, and it's been a big encouragement to me. So welcome, welcome, Ling. We're really glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Uh, if we could begin, and I know some people listening to this already know you because your name will draw those that do know you, but for those that don't... Um, Maybe you can introduce yourself. Not only does Ling teach uh, in the social work department, but she does work at, for us at, at the college on, on things like suffering. She teaches with Joe Kim in the Bible department on a theology of suffering class. Um, that Ling's story, your story is a very impressive story of God's grace and love in your life, um, where you've come out of and where he drew you. Maybe you could just give us some of your background so that we can contextualize it. Sure, absolutely. Um, I share it often that I grew up in government housing projects in Hong Kong with very horrible living conditions. Uh, you would see drug dealers, uh, gangster, and the life we lived in Hong Kong was really horrible. That was about, I think, a, a hundred square foot for about nine of us living in the same apartment. Mm -hmm. And somehow we survived. <laughs> but you lived in very close quarters with all my neighbors, and you can hear drunk dad beating families and all kinds of difficult circumstances that people living in extreme poverty would experience. Um, I even remember one time, one of the most traumatic childhood experiences that uh, after that drunk dad passed out, I remember hearing the, my neighbor friend crying and I sneak over and took a look and I saw that she was tied up and, and the dad was, you know, kind of, kind of fell into a stupor after his, this rampage and I stuck in the apartment and untied her. And I mean, it was a regular occurrence in terms of living under stress. And my parents were themselves, uh, they were illiterate, didn't have any specialized skills in work, 
really under immeasurable amount of stress to provide for six children and my grandmother. And they weren't home. So we ended up taking care of ourselves a lot. Uh, maybe we didn't take care of ourselves. I'm not sure what we did. But I remember taking care of my three-year-old sister. I was five years old and I was becoming, I was a mother even at that age already. I still find it is amazing God's grace that I boil noodles in a hot pot, making ramen noodles when I was five years old, standing on a rickety chair, but never burn myself or somehow never burn down the apartment. <laughs> you know, starting a fire, five-year-old propane stove. Um, so that was kind of some of the upbringing that I had. Uh, I was taking care of my my uh, younger sister, she was two years younger mm. for quite a few years on my own mm. and then living in a very dangerous environment with gangsters mm. and druggies laying around. So that's a little and bit of my And working in a sweatshop. You were working as a young girl too, weren't you? I mean, you in the got, summers, you the yeah. Home, yeah. No, in the summers. I did that a lot, working right. in sweatshops. And actually those were the fun moments for me because I got to get out of the house a little mm. bit and not be in those crazy environments. Um, but we talked about uh, that in, with my students sometime in policy class, sometime child labor is not always bad because it provides for my family. Mm. Mm. That's a different conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't go there today if that's all right. Yeah, different no, podcast, no. labor yeah. and shrinking God in the whirlwind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, we'll do we that talk, in a couple yeah, weeks. Yeah, I teach yeah. a human trafficking class and we talk about child labor and I mm. often use my own examples and it's, mm. explain some of those perspectives. So. And then God called you out of that somehow miraculously. Where, where did that happen? Oh, wow. That was really some journey. That might take two hours of this. Okay. I know. Yeah. Tell you, but I, I will <laughs> got shorten two minutes. That. Uh, yeah. I'll shorten <laughs> that, that I obviously as a, a child, I was a very sensitive child and I absorbed so much of those trauma. We experienced a lot of emotional, verbal and physical abuse growing up. And the, the environment I grew up in, all I saw was just hopelessness and despair. I didn't see any joy. Uh, but there was one neighbor of mine, apparently he was a Christian. Uh, now I look back, I realize he was. He was always, he always had a smile on his face and he was probably the only one in the whole entire apartment in the project that had a smile on his face. And mm. I have no clue why he was doing that. And that was kind of my first uh, ex exposure to someone that's a Christian, had this hot mm. smile on their face. <laughs> so then as I grew older, I, I, uh, I shared that pretty openly that I had various suicidal thoughts and attempts mm. because my life was so uh, sad from what I saw. And I had this one classmate in high school that prayed for me for two years, apparently. And wow. she told me afterwards, faithfully, inviting me to a student Bible study. And I usually just told her no, and or gave her some rude hand gestures. That's not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> what a thumbs you up? Would, Is that what you did, Link? A thumbs up? Yeah, thumbs up. Yeah, something like that. Okay. <laughs> it meant something else, and I'll call it. But anyway, uh, for two years she did that, and I think that one day when I was really making a thought that hey, I want to do something nice for her before I die, before I mm. hurt myself uh, and my life, and I went with her, and that was. This one Bible study became one year Bible study, and wow. then about a year later, I became a believer. Hmm. And just, just long story short, and God led me to America to study and to find out more about Him. Hmm. So that's another but, two year two. Yeah, hours I would love to have discussion. the I would love to have the podcast space to, to do that. Um, so I'm not walking away from it because it's not what I want to talk about. But I think yeah. in that, when we've had a chance to talk, and I think what you do with your students is you're able to leverage some of these experiences you've had. Uh, most experience you've had to help people understand how you deal with things like suffering. And I think in our conversations and Mark, we've done a lot of this. It's funny how this comes back. And I guess it's the COVID thing, right? So let me not just say it's random, but 
back to this idea that we, we don't handle suffering well and um, we don't frame it well. We don't have a lot of experience with it. Um, and so it, it, it hurts us and we, we do things we ought not do in it. But you, you've got a pretty good framework, I think, from how you've mm -hmm. developed that. And you've given us two principles in a previous conversation. So I want to give you a chance just to, just to share those principles with us about, about suffering. Sure. And from my childhood experience, the very first thing I found out was that suffering is very real. Because you know it's unavoidable in our neighborhood. Everywhere you look, there are sufferings, and then I've learned that um, it hurts badly to suffer. Mm. It's not something we can just say, "Oh, if you just think more positively, it will go away." <laughs> <laughs> now that's important, though. Like, I mean, that's that's an important yeah. thing, right? Because because by taking medicines and we find ways to grin and bear it, don't we? I mean, isn't that the mm -hmm. isn't that what we yeah. do as Western Christians? Right, and then I think, and we had that conversation before about how it's really tied to the prosperity gospel that limited our ability to acknowledge that suffering hurts. It doesn't make us less of Christians. And then, you know, we can look at scriptures in John 16, 33, right? It talked about uh, Jesus' own word, talked about in this world, we will have trouble. This is a sure thing. He didn't say you may, but right. he said you will have trouble. And in 1 Peter 4, 12, it talked, Peter said, dear friends, do not be surprised and the fiery ordeal that we'll experience. It's, it's mm. nothing surprising, this is real. And what I have learned though from those suffering, once I became a Christian, those suffering didn't just poof, went away. Mm. I still mm. have such a long journey of healing from my childhood trauma. And in, in a by research, you know, they study called, uh, a study, adverse childhood experiences. I don't know if you heard of that study. Yeah. And it just projected a child with major trauma we will have a higher risk of health issues as an adult mm -hmm. because your body and your mental health and all that are influenced by that. So I still have a whole long journey uh, to process those pain and suffering despite the fact that I became a Christian. So that's mm -hmm. the very first thing that I've learned and people have a lot of misconceptions about, especially mm -hmm. if you adhere to the prosperity gospel. Once you become a Christian, those things don't go away. Mm -hmm. But... But that's a big but, right? God provided a way for you to do that. And I kept looking. And my healing journey, one of the things that gave me hope is kept looking into, you know, the revelations. that talk hmm. about there would be no more death and no more crying hmm. or pain in revelations. And that's what I look forward to. Hmm. And in the midst of going through all those healing, I rely on God heavily in helping me with those healings. He didn't take that away, but he gave me insight of who he is. He's a gracious, loving God that care about our, our healing and our wholeness. And then we have something to look forward to, as John said in Revelation. So. And, and, you're, and, and when you talk about this, you, you have this, this really, I mean, it's, it's, as you were saying it to us a little while ago, it has, it, it of course imitates the great commandment here. But, but I think the way you're saying it is that, that what we tend to do when we get suffering is then ask why, why me, why is this happening to me? And I think that comes with this underlying expectation, as to your point, that it ought not happen. Right. Um, I, I, I say this embarrassingly, and I think I mentioned a while ago, my my younger daughter said, oh, there's a disease. Ooh, I'm glad it's over there. <laughs> and I, she's, a, she's a small kid, but and I know she doesn't understand what she's saying, but it, it's in a sense it, it shouldn't happen here. Right. But your, your point is that we don't look at this and say, why me? We ask the question, how? Mm -hmm. That, that was I interesting. Because mm -hmm. I figured, you know, Jesus wasn't exempt from suffering either. We're not all that special when you ask why me is all about you. But it happens to all of us. So it's not about just why me. 
So as a Christ follower, one of the things that, you know, I share with you, one of my two main aim in life, which I fail often, is to bring <laughs> glory to God and to care for uh, people around me that he brought into my life as best, with, as best I can. And while, while suffering happens to everyone, it shifted your focus of asking the why question to how, how can I bring glory to God while I'm suffering? And like I mentioned, like you mentioned at the beginning, Dr. Kim and I co-teach the theology of suffering. And one of the questions we encourage students to ask is not the why question, is to what end? What is the purpose of this suffering? And asking this different question can shift our focus and response to suffering that comes our way. Mm. And it changes how we interact with people. Mm. And in many ways, Dan, I think that that really uh, even speaks to how some of our historic confessions talk about it, right? What is the mm. chief end of man? Um, you know, it's, it's more about bringing glory to God. How do we bring glory to God in these uh, times? So that, that, that's a, it's a very theologically insightful uh, approach. Uh, Ling, I wanted to ask you this. I mean, you, you, we, we spoke last week with some, some missionaries in Ecuador and they were explaining how some of the people in Ecuador, particularly the people who live at the, at the dumps, uh, wrestle with this. And, and for some people, um, suffering becomes a means of, well, God must not exist. Um, or, you know, God doesn't, uh, doesn't care about me. I, I'd be curious to ask you in your, in your um, coming to faith, one, how did the culture that you were living in talk about suffering? And then how did your regeneration and all kind of re- recalibrate that mm -hmm. i think uh in the christian culture without the christian in a, in a chinese culture without the christian context it's very fatalistic uh, life just horrible and that's part of life you just accept it and if it's something could happen you got lucky <laughs> that's about mm -hmm. it but into a christian perspective then that would be different because uh god's character doesn't change just because our circumstances right. is horrible he stayed the same God. He's still sovereign. And we can't look at the world based on just this one slice of this world. We look at it through the meta-narrative. This is the brokenness of this world, but there's something else after that. That's redemption. It's to come. You know, Jesus coming back. Those are the meta-narratives that we can't ignore. That's, so when we say suffering means, in this world means God doesn't exist, you're only looking at part of the story. That's not the whole story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you didn't read the finished part yet the highlights are still to come yeah, so don't close yeah. the chapter yet mm. so that's how i look at it that's a, that's a good point ling and that's maybe and yeah. we've talked about this a little as well but the that meta narrative and that that's something that strikes me that we have not done a good job of we're not aware of how many meta narratives are affecting us and i know it's not just and there are in my discipline mark mark and i discipline there's a lot of meta narratives built into the way history is done and the way that we it's fun to unpack those, but then there's meta narratives I've actually bought into. Mm -hmm. I don't even know I've bought into, and it comes out when something bad goes on. And I go, "Oh yeah, what, what's what's wrong, God? Why why have you screwed up?" And I, and I guess what I don't realize sometimes is I've actually got I'm actually got the wrong meta narrative. Mm -hmm. <laughs> got the wrong well, you, story. Mm -hmm. You just kind of didn't finish your story. Yet. <laughs> You're in the middle. <laughs> in the middle of the chapter. You read the last the good, chapter. Yeah, the yeah. good part is coming, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that's helpful. And speak to us a minute in your profession, because this is, this is not only a challenge personally, right? This is a challenge professionally, because in all of our fields, we come to these really, and I, I find it, I, it took me a while in graduate school, Mark, I haven't talked much about you about this, but 
in graduate school, I realized that most of what was being done as history was just a confirmation of a story that everyone else apparently believed, mm-hmm. but no one talked about the story. Um, but, but you've done this, right? You've got to deal with theories and social work and, and meta narratives. Mm-hmm. How, how do you, how do you see them? How, how do you, how do you know that they're there? How do you keep on guard so that you're not yeah, taken away you, by them? Maybe one way to frame this is how do you operate as a Christian social worker? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, with all these narratives coming at you. I think it's very important to remember that God gave us a critical mind and that we need to use our mind carefully. And like you said, Dan, you know, even we live, we know how to talk to Christian talk, but sometimes we forget our meta narrative uh, influenced by the world thoughts. And so we don't, and I think one of the, the biggest uh, drawback of being busy is that we don't have time to stop and contemplate and think and deconstruct thoughts that comes our way. And I'm sure you heard of, you know, hurting people hurt people. Part of the reason hurting people hurt people is because they don't stop and think about what's hurting them. So then you come, your behavior reflects what's hurting you. And in terms of answering your question about uh, all those different theories in social work, oftentimes very secular, in a sense, humanistic view and, and conflict theory, all those things oftentimes are greeted by theorists that are not, that are not Christian or downright atheist. And yet, oftentimes, people in our profession, social work, just absorb those values from people that wrote those values and practice out that value without shining it under the biblical light. Hmm. And one of the basic things I always tell the student humanists believe that we have good in nature and we have all the resources within us to solve problems. And that's why the world spin out of control so quickly with COVID, I think, is hmm. because we think we have all the resources to address problem within us because we have all this good stuff within us. But the truth is we don't. We are mm. helpless without God. And mm. so what do you do with that, that uh, this harmony of what you understood to be true is that we should be capable of solving all this problem on our own because we have resources within us versus uh, the understanding that we are sinful people that need Jesus. Mm. So I think that caused a lot of disharmony. And as a practitioner, I think I really, as a Christian practitioner specifically, I really need to stop and think what are the values that's been told to me by my professions? And how is that different from what the Bible said? Mm-hmm. And need mm-hmm. to sit down and really you know, break it down. And I do that with my student in our, what we call our human behavior and environment uh, class that we, we break down all the theories. And then I, one of the final paper they always dread is, <laughs> is to compare, uh, to look at those theories and look at it from a biblical standpoint. Mm-hmm. How do you see biblical truth in those theories? If they are not, how, what are some of the things that you see is contradictory to the Bible? Mm. So I think a thoughtful life is very important mm. as, as a practitioner. I think what you bring up here too is just being on our toes and attentive, um, not, not, not scared. You're, those of you that know Ling will know that it is, I'm sorry, the size, you're not an overly tall person, just there's no <laughs> fear in you. <laughs> and I think when you, when you tackle these really powerful ideas, you know, you can be, you can be scared of them, but I, I think you come at it with just not afraid of them, not afraid to tackle them, not afraid to question them, not afraid to ask why. Um, courage in there to do that, right? I mean, because I mean, we have to then find out we might be wrong mm-hmm. in the way we've yeah. done it. And I, I find out I'm often wrong, but please don't tell my husband I told you that. <laughs> <laughs> but, we'll edit that part out. Yeah, I'm going to edit that part out. recording that. Yeah, I think if we are not thoughtful, it's we so easily being influenced by this world because the world has a pattern of thoughts that they would, they would tell us this world is 
is made of good people, and there are lots of good people out there, and we just have to be kind to each other. They all sound somewhat mythical, but the motivation behind it is often self-motivated,、mm. so that we can feel good about ourselves. And I, I think if we don't stop and think, what is the world telling you, and why are they telling you those stories?、Uh, they tell you so they can preserve their sense of selves with living dependent on their God. That might be. Not helpful to our Christian walk if we don't stop and think about that.、So. That's that's a great point、um, because I think particularly in the in in social services,、uh, social services in the West at least were in many ways founded by the church. I mean, hospitals、mm-hmm. were founded by the church.、Uh, uh, social reform, all these types of things, public schools, prison reform, and it it, it was a product in many ways of of the Christian worldview. Um, but because we now live in a pro,、uh, Tim Keller's talked about this. We now live in a post-Christian world, which is not a pre, is not a,、mm-hmm. a pre-Christian or non-Christian. It's post-Christian. That oftentimes the these professions like social work, historians, or or teachers or counselors, they'll use Christian-like language、mm-hmm. because it's in the it's in the DNA. But it、right. means something very different because it's now post-Christian. Uh, and so that's so important to. So l- let me ask this question. There's a question we always wrestle with, Ling, and, and we talked a little about this offline. I want to give you a chance to, to unpack this a bit.、Um, people, when Dan and I, when we do our studies, they say, "Are you a Christian historian or, or a historian who who is a Christian?" You know, which comes first? Which which is the noun and which is the edge? So how do you respond to that? How do you train your students? Are they Christian social workers、um, who who have a critical eye on this stuff? I mean, or or, or Uh, how do you how do you unpack that?、Um, one of the key、uh, key identity I hold very dear to is that I am a follower of Christ.、Mm-hmm. Nothing else would take away from that. I could be a baker, I could be a trash collector, I could be a social worker. I am a Christian,、mm-hmm. and so when I share with my students that we are Christians, that have the privilege to be trained in the social work profession to serve God. And the, our core identity doesn't change no matter what profession we pick.、Uh, I don't know if that kind of answer your question. No, that's that, but that's yeah, yeah. How I look at it. Well, no, we, I, th- I think that's an important because I think what what we can easily do is, especially in the West, we get tied up in our job, and that that tends to create our identity. And the way you've been talking, I think just a very real, concrete way of saying what I do is how I serve God. Who、mm-hmm. I am is a follower of Christ, and I, I think in the、yes. West we can. Yeah, we can get that all tied up with each other. Well, I, it's funny. I, I was I noticed this now that I'm a care group leader and I, I'm kind of a glad hander in a party. And I always say, you know, who are you? You know, what do you do? And it's always the job becomes the identity. And and then that. And I think Mark, what we found in history is that the more you identify yourself as a story, and the more these theories take over how you define things. But if、yeah. if ultimately I'm saying I'm a follower of Christ, and the way you've said it, I think is so. Beautiful. If if I'm a follower of Christ, then that is my identity, and now I have to look at how I can live out that identity in my job. And I,、mm-hmm. I don't know if that's unique, but it's just such a powerful, clear way of saying it.、Mm-hmm. And I always, you know, tell the student that I like to use food as an analogy because I love to eat. I say it's like social work is the icing and the cake. But if you don't have a cake, you don't need the icing. And if you have too much icing, your cake will collapse. Cake <laughs> is your identity as a believer. That's a good analogy, but I've been known to eat icing right out of the can. That's an anomaly somewhere. Get, you'll get sick of eating too much icing. <laughs> but then I said, you can't decorate a cake with without the cake in the center, and Christ is the center. 
and then your social work knowledge is the icing that make it look kind of pretty, but you know, but without it, the cake is still there. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but I- well, it is, yeah. And maybe I can tie into something else you've talked about a little bit, and that is God's call on our lives. And I, as we've been talking about this COVID thing, you know, this, this idea that I think what COVID has disrupted for so many of us is that we had all these great plans and who I have to be and, and God in a way, it's for a lot of us just taken that away. And now we're sort of like, what's God's call on my life? And, you know, how, how, how does that play into to our misconceptions here sometimes? In terms of clarifying like, question. Yeah, having a, having a call, you know, and I think, I think we all say, you know, my, my call, I forget what you said at one point, but we've all got this grand call, right? We're going to go out and save the world and God's called me to do this. And, and then that, that's us trying to self-actualize, mm -hmm. not actually following the call of God in our lives. Mm -hmm. So how, how, I, do we, how do we recalibrate that? I think, that, I think it's important for us to examine where did this grand idea that we need to all have this great big call came from? <laughs> Is it related to the humanistic view of like you said, self-actualized. Now that you did all this thing, so the greatest goal in life is to feel fulfilled. And this fulfillment came from answering this great call, call that God has installed for you somewhere, some mysterious way you'll find out. If you fast 100 hours or whatever, pray. But I, I think our call is the day-to-day -day mundane doing God's work. He places here, and we talked about that. We don't have, we are not people that have to live in the kingdom and but we are called to live in the kingdom of men. Every day we live and breathe is a calling. And every day we live and breathe is a gift that God gives us to serve him. And from small things such as making breakfast for your kids to big things such as writing a dissertation, all those things are all <laughs> God's work is not my work. I don't think God was in my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> That's because you were hanging gave... out with a bunch of Marxists up there. <laughs> 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 but God gave you the the opportunity and capability to do those things. And I looked at serving God as not as, okay, I'm going to be a missionary in some remote corner, but every day we live and breathe, we do our very best in serving him. And I, I told you that how much I like A.W. Tozer. Yeah. And the mm -hmm. book that he has, that one that I reread over and over again is Of God and Man. And his one little section is talk about our disposition. He said, hey, the title that, that one segment is called The Evils of, of a Bad Disposition. And he said, dispositional sins are fully as injurious, injurious to the Christian cause as the more overt acts of wickedness. How we present ourselves each day in our disposition it can be just as honoring or can be as destructive as some wicked sins we have. So, I mean, I apply this in the same principles that little things we do is just as significant as some big call that God has in mind for us in serving him and presenting who he is. Right now, we're, we're, we're dealing with, um, particularly in the West, uh, I think the, the COVID-19 has um, COVID crisis has kind of shaken our identities. Um, and we talked a little bit about this offline. Can, can you speak a little bit to that, too, about how crisis affects our identities? Because I think disposition sometimes affects our identities, right? How do I identify? You know, I identify as a Jesus follower who feeds my kids, loves my wife, you know, honors God, you know, I'm a historian, I'm a professor. Um, but, but um, if you could speak a little bit to maybe how crisis shapes identity or challenges identity, that would be mm -hmm. helpful to our listeners. Mm -hmm. I, I think I use the analogy that if God created us in such a unique way when we are we face any kind of danger and crisis that will release certain muscle, uh, certain uh, hormones, such as epinephrine, to sharpen our focus, to 
to help us run away from danger. And when crises occur in a Christian sense that I think is the same way, that it would really, really challenge our sense of self and our, our identity. And it will, this crisis will sharpen our focus and spiritual focus of who we belong to and what kingdom you belong to. It makes you think of existential, existential questions, mm-hmm. so to speak. And if our identity is truly in Christ and not, like for me, am I a social worker or a Christian? You asked that, but yeah. my, my core identity is Christian. So then even if I lost my job as a social worker, I'm still a Christian. Mm-hmm. That identity doesn't change. Mm-hmm. I'm still firmly planted in who I am in Christ and his kingdom. Mm, that's so nice. That's, so that's nice. helpful. Yeah. And you said it one way, like, you know, when, when hardship comes, I don't know if what you meant was it reveals who you are. But, but what I took that to mean is as crisis comes and, you know, or suffering comes and my identity is shaken because I haven't taken the time to build up the strength to anchor it in Christ. Like I've, mm-hmm. I, it, obviously, I've been anchoring it in other places, and God is lovingly chipping those away to remind me, you know, where my identity mm-hmm. is. Um, and I, I think you use the term muscles mm-hmm. uh, for suffering. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, suffering well, muscles. Was yeah, suffering <laughs> muscles. Yeah. I know none of us like to uh, do exercise, right? I used to be a marathon, half marathon runner. I ran five of them. And uh, I know what it takes to finish a race. And it takes time for your body to get used to all the craziness. And as I grew up in such a horrendous environment, the other thing I could see, I gained from that, is that I have so many opportunities that I don't wish on anybody to practice what we, what I call a coping mechanism muscle for suffering. So when suffering comes, I'm not shocked by it. I'm like, oh, okay. So especially as a social worker, I know I need to remain calm and be thoughtful about how can I best support the person in front of me that may be in crisis. So those muscles been strengthened over and over and over again. So when we have uh, friends and family that struggles and couldn't cope well, the last thing we need is to be judgmental of them. It, it could just mean that life experiences haven't given them the opportunity to strengthen those muscles. So that's when we come into place, we could be someone's personal trainer and standing side by side with them and help them strengthen that muscles and keep pointing them to this meta narrative, keep encouraging them to re- finish reading that book, mm-hmm. uh, not just mm-hmm. look at the, the book in the middle of it. And this world is falling apart as we all know it, but there's something else better coming yet. So uh, I never think of myself a personal trainer. That one, that doesn't sound bad. <laughs> I'm not that fit, but, <laughs> but anyway. Well, this is a question I have too. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I am very American. I mean, I, I grew up in Philly. The Declaration of Independence was literally written in my backyard, uh, of course, 200 years before I was there. But um, And there's this idea of an American, I have rights, uh, these types of things. And, and sometimes that starts to shape uh, our identity. How, If there's someone listening right now and they, they say, hey, I really agree with what you're saying, but I don't really have good suffering muscles you know i realize i have muscle atrophy with suffering because i've grown up in america and with a different uh, kingdom focus um what are some ways that we can practically as christians really start to develop uh and i get you'll get this as the marathon runner our base you know you got to build your base muscles first before you you run the what are some things that we can do as christians to kind of strengthen our base uh, to 
power up our suffering muscles uh, mm-hmm. for things like this. Well, for one thing, I think uh, don't be surprised when it comes because suffering will come to you. So I don't think you have to go out in search of it. <laughs> as no, 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 no. We don't want anyone it, licking poles or their tabletops <laughs> and looking for suffering. No, 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 no. It, it will come to us. And I think the other part that strengthens our muscle is that being in a community, caring for people and experiencing that suffering with them is very helpful mm. and they really strengthen our compassionate heart, so to speak, and they teach us how to care for each other. Uh, we're naive about other people's suffering. Sometimes it's because we intentionally wanting to be naive. We look away when it's unpleasant. When someone talks about unpleasant thing, we tend to change the topic because, oh, that's a downer topic. Let's talk about something more positive. And we seem to lack the capacity to give people the freedom to lay land and to talk about mm. things that are hard. And I think we can enter into those sufferings intentionally. Hmm. That's helpful. And then, and also the, the community is one aspect. Um, and I, I like that trainer idea because that, that means both you seek trainers, right? When you're going through suffering and the community of the church, and you also seek to be a trainer, even if you're not quite fit for it yet, um, it helps you. And then, and then there's also pieces where we get to develop our, our interior side. Um, and I think at one point you had talked about just, just being quiet. Um, maybe some of these spiritual disciplines we've really lost. Have you found those to be helpful for yes. you? Yes, very much so. And it's actually been harder because of COVID. I couldn't be alone. <laughs> I have my family here. <laughs> but, <laughs> but otherwise, I intentionally go to a personal retreat about once a month. I go away. I talk to nobody. Uh, and that's hard for me because I talk too much. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I spend a lot of long time just to listen to what God has to say to me, to confess on areas that I know I fail God badly. And those are very important time to reorient ourselves. And, and you give your, you know, I remember you guys, the kingdom of man, to reorient ourselves to the kingdom of, of God. Because you are living here, so it's hard. You have to obey the traffic law, and you should. And, yeah. <laughs> and the speed limit, this is for my husband. But, uh, we'll make sure but, we play that twice. Put yes, that on yes, there twice, that's Mark. That's right. But, you know, uh, we're living in this kingdom that has all those narratives that tell to us that's not God's narrative. And we need to contemplate. We need time to think and reflect. And we... We can't fill out every minute and bore. We have this glorification of busyness. When you say, how am I doing? I'll list a bunch of things I'm doing. I'm really busy. But I I think we need to go back to the simpler things Mm. to really take time to to look at our inner thoughts and heart to make sure it's lined up with God's principle. Mm. It almost sounds like we, we... We need to disconnect ourselves a bit from the kingdom of man to remind ourselves which kingdom we actually belong to. Um, mm-hmm. it's, when, when I grew up in Philadelphia, I grew up in a lot of, in, there were a lot of immigrant uh, uh, people in, in the community. And there were also uh, a number of Orthodox Jewish people in the community. It was very interesting that the Orthodox Jewish people, they didn't want to lose their identity as, as Jewish, even though they were living in Philadelphia in a row home. And their kids would go to Hebrew school. They would do Hebrew things. They would be part of this to remind them to uh, connect them with this, this, what their identity was being Jewish. Um, we had other students, if you ever saw the, the wedding, my big fat, or the movie, my big fat Greek wedding, yeah. right? you know, the, the immigrant could send their kids to Greek school or, or something because they want them to uh, remember that they also have this other identity 
And it, it sounds from what I'm hearing is that maybe in some ways we need to be better at disconnecting from the kingdom of man and whether it's going on a silent retreat or some of these other things to recalibrate and reconnect with where our citizenship actually belongs. Is that a fair analogy? Well, I don't know if I use the word disconnect. Maybe it's connect contemporary, for temporary. For That's what I meant. That's moment. what I meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I was afraid of people saying, this is weird. We're Christians and this is no, not no, our no, world. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, so yeah, I, yeah, yeah. No, I was no, very no, nervous no. about the word disconnect. We want to live in this world so we can show other people how we can be different. So the last thing we want is to isolate ourselves. But right. I think we need to reorient ourselves. Hmm. I think that's the word I would use, hmm. reorient ourselves uh, of who we are. This it seems like we're coming back to the theme identity a lot. Hmm. Do we know our identity? Do we get lost in our identity? And the crisis revealing us that our, is our identity off? If we are hmm. very panicky and fearful, um, and I mean, there are things in, uh, from the COVID-19 that caused major pain in people's life, financial losses and all that. I'm not denying any of that. But I think if we live in a, in a state of panic and fear, we might need to rethink where's our identity, where's our treasure lies, mm. and, and what citizenship are we clinging on to mm. closely? So what, you, you've, you've had experience with this in a very tangible way because way Mark is talking about, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I grew up in New York, so the Hasidics had their own way of doing this, but you've, you've come out of a culture um, that identifies you've moved into this one. And not only is it just American Chinese, but it's Western Eastern, right? I mean, it's a, it's a big transition. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you've made that transition, but I th- you think you've said things like, but I, I don't want to not be part of America, right? Because you are part of America. But at the mm-hmm. same time, you, you need to know who you are and where you've come from. So you've already navigated this in a very tangible mm-hmm. way. What, what have you learned from navigating that? That would help mm-hmm. us navigate our, our dual citizenship. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think we talked about in our other conversations that I use the word acculturation. I don't do assimilation. Assimilation is that you become entirely their citizens, embrace all the value of their citizenship. So I certainly don't want to embrace all the values of secular view because they are not consistent with the Bible. On the other hand, isolation, which is what I was saying to Mark, oh, I don't want to isolate because that will make us look like we don't belong. Uh, we are, we set apart are better than the other people. So what I did come to the conclusion that made it made sense for me is called acculturation. I took both best of both culture and embrace both and navigate in both world, and so that I can make sense in both world. Um, so that is what I come to as a person. In terms of Christianity, I think we can do acculturation, acculturation in a sense not to embrace the secular culture and make it our identity, but we can treasure our kingdom identity and live in this world comfortably and not losing our sense of self because I'm very clear who I am. What are some of the good things that, that this world has uh, that I would not let it take hold of who I am and wouldn't overwhelm me. I don't know if that helped understand. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I, I yeah. think, yeah, I don't know if Mark, you would, I don't want to cut you off there. No, no. I, one, one of the things I, I, I wanted to, go a little deeper in with this because I think it gets at this in a real tangible way. Uh, a word that keeps coming back in all these conversations, Dan and Ling, it, it, with all, all the ones we've had is lament. Uh, and I think we all want a space to lament in this, but I feel like sometimes my, my citizenship as an American, it's like, well, I shouldn't lament because I'm entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> and happiness seems to be the antithesis of lament. Um, so my, my citizenship gets, wrestle. I wrestle with that, right? Because my it seems as if 
my citizenship in the kingdom of God and the, in the story, the narrative of the kingdom of God has lament built in mm. yet. Mm. Uh, I grew up 10 miles away from where someone told me on a codified it in a piece of paper that says I'm supposed to be happy. <laughs> you know, it's my right by God. God gave me that right. You know, not even so, <laughs> right. So, so like, can, can you help me process that? I mean, and I think you're, you're, your acculturation narrative really works well with that. Can you help us think through how do we negotiate? Because Americans, we as Americans in general are not good at lament and American mm -hmm. Christians, I don't think are good at lament. So why is that? If you know, what's the problem there? I think from a, uh, in a Christian community standpoint, I think we really are badly influenced by the prosperity gospel. Once you became a Christian, you should always be happy, joyful, and think positive thoughts. If you think positive mm -hmm. thoughts, all those bad things goes away. Um, I call that magical thinking, really, but, <laughs> but um, I, I think in a sense that when we talk about rights, um, the rights that we have in America, if we can, and those are good things, the rights we have should help us uh, care for each other well and protect each other as community, not protect what's mine, as much as how can we enhance the well-being of the community. Having those rights is to help enhance the well-being of the community, not so that I could be a happier person. And I don't know if that would be helpful for us to look at it from that kingdom perspective. Mm -hmm. The acculturation, yes, we have this right as American, right? Uh, you use this right to care and, and the well-being of the entire community and people around you. So then now all of a sudden you're acculturated to values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, which would also give me space for lament with a framing in that way. Uh, because, you know, happiness, yes, but the happiness is for the community, for... The, the republic not just me individually um mm -hmm. so that's a that's a helpful that's a helpful way of, of getting at this yeah, yeah and, I, and i think i think I've, i say this to students when we go through the intellectual history of the republic um not that this is relevant necessarily ling but i say i say we we say rights is now what what the community owes me that's that's how we sort of think it now they were thinking of it no this is right in other words this is how i am part of my community i'm part of my society and when the society is healthy, I'm happy. That doesn't mean my life is going well. Maybe I'm in debt. Maybe I've got disease. Maybe I've got health problems. But the community is healthy, and that's where happiness is to be found, um, which I think is we have a really tough time as modern Americans because I think, Mark, you're right. We, we've interpreted that I have the right to life, liberty, and happiness if someone owes me happiness, mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. that I'm committing myself to the happiness of my community. Yeah, yeah. And I know it's important because Ling, and this is, this is where the West can easily make a mistake. We can get very individual about the focus of the whole thing rather than, I think I like the way you say it. It's, it's how can I use this idea of the right of happiness to serve other people and the community rather than just the individual. I think this kind of circle back to your answer, how can we uh, integrate as Christians serving in our professions? Mm -hmm. So if your aim is always about caring for people, then we have, the social workers, you know, very rough. This is the rights of our, our clients. But you use that right to make sure you enhance the well-being of the community, not just of this client. And you, you kind of broaden your view. And you don't compromise your social work values, nor do you compromise the Christian values. And I think that's good acculturation there and integration. So. Let me ask this question. Um, we, we've talked a lot so far about how we, the sufferer, should uh, recalibrate uh, our identities and think through some of these things. But there's another side of this, that how do we view those who are suffering? Mm 
Um, and, 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 and so sometimes this idea of happiness and rights and prosperity gospel, how does that impact how we maybe who are not suffering start to view those who are suffering and and Mm -hmm. where are some of the problems with that? You've spoken a little bit about that. I found really helpful. I think we, I think we, I remember our conversation when I was growing up, I don't know if I told you guys that, but the nuns and the Catholic diocese came and trying to rescue out the people in poverty, right? Uh, and then really they have great motivations and they were kind and wanted to help, but their understanding of our suffering, people living in poverty, has to do with our own fault. And there were some assumptions that we were lazy and we were immoral people and then God punished us for our immorality, whatever that means. <laughs> and so that's why we struck with this suffering of poverty. And I think sometimes of those of us that do not, did not experience that kind of suffering easily can judge someone. And because you, if you put yourself in that shoes, then all of a sudden you lose that sense of um, control that maybe I can't control this. Maybe something happened just because you were born in this situation as a, you know, I was born in poverty. I definitely didn't have a choice where I was born. And so I think sometimes we can become judgmental to those that suffer just because we are not there and we don't see ourselves in that place because we couldn't possibly be that immoral. And you made up all this narrative that's not true about people that are suffering. And then we become cold and unkind and not compassionate. And, and we're yeah, making those... Oh, go ahead, Sorry, Mark. Well, I was going to say, yeah, and, that, and that, that goes back to your early point that suffering comes to everybody. And, and uh, you know, I think we do find ourselves a bit cushioned in that our finances or our families or something has allowed us, which is, again, a good thing. And maybe this goes to the, the navigating or negotiating wing that you can help us with some, is that these things are good things, right? I mean, the things that have protected me in my life are things that are gifts from God, but they very quickly become idols, right? They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're gifts of God's goodness to me but then they become the things I cling to rather than the gift giver himself. Mm. Um, so, you know, and I, and I, I know you've seen, you've seen from suffering in Asia um, and China where you've been to here and it's all very different. I um, mean, you say, well, there's, there's a lot of good things in this Western, with Western uh, medicine and food and, and uh, plenty and safety and peace. But boy, we, we oftentimes turn those into the idols, right? Rather than, rather than see through them into what God has given us. How, how do we, how do we not take this world too seriously? How do we appreciate what God has given us without mm-hmm. turning those things into our reason for living? Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I think it's deeper than that, that what do we see our, our feet land in terms of as a foundation that will alter our lens of mm-hmm. how we respond to suffering. And, but the, the important part is the Western definition of suffering is so limited to just resources. Just mm-hmm. because someone is poor doesn't mean they're suffering. In, in, from what I've learned in my culture, you know, and, and I, I said that to people all the time. I said, I didn't mind being poor growing up. It really, that in itself didn't cause the suffering. What su- well, the suffering that came from that, I was not aware that I was loved. Nobody was spending time telling me as a child that I was special and I'm loved and I, and I was busy caring for my own sister. And working hard never bothered me. It's the fact that I was never, the narrative of that I was not loved was more hurtful. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to expand our understanding what one, what the definition of suffering is. It's not just physical. Yeah. Someone could have all the resources, but relationally, 
and spiritually and all the other areas to be very poor and suffering. So I think that's part of it is that the Western limitations and definition of suffering that affected how you respond to suffering. What's very fascinating about that too is if, 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 if I'm with a missions organization and I'm trying to help a five-year-old Ling my Western lens says, well, she needs more stuff, right? She needs more resources. So mm -hmm. I'm going to get her an education. I'm going to get her a better place to live. I'm going to get her this. I'm going to get her that. And I address her material poverty, but I've not addressed, and I wrote this down, her love poverty, mm -hmm. you know, her and emotional I, I, poverty, her spiritual poverty. And the very thing did happen. You know, the Catholic diocese gave us education and occasionally gave us shoes that never fit, but was fine. <laughs> uh, or, but all the, and one of the scary stories that I always tell people, I said that they gave us a Christmas party, the Catholic church. And I'm not here, I'm not bashing the Catholic church Christmas. Yeah, sure. It was just the organization that came to help us. But uh, they gave us, a, the first thing that was wrong was that they gave us a Chinese Santa. I know Santa should not be Chinese. And it was skinny. <laughs> he was a skinny Santa. I knew there was something wrong. But, you know, he carried a little bag with present. And all those kids in the project never got any gift. We were so excited. And it was Christmas, you know. And we got all got this bar of chocolate. But in our culture, you can't open a present in front of people to give it to you, you have to wait till we get home. So mm. we were all desperate waiting until the program ends and we ran home and opened it. <laughs> and the chocolate has worms in it. Oh. It was all chocolate that was hidden in some warehouse for years and years to expire some of oh. people here, yeah, this is free chocolate. So for me, I would rather never receive that chocolate. It was so insulting and hurtful. And, and so obviously I'm still terrified of skinny, Chinese Santa Claus. With chocolate, with worms. With chocolate. Chocolate. Yeah. Beware, yeah. that's the new parable. Beware the skinny Santa. Yeah. Yes. Bearing Probably World War II surplus leftover chocolate. I don't know what it was. It was terrible. But I'm just saying that it's that lack of dignity they gave us. Even though they gave us material things, so to speak, and education, and they, they would punish us because their assumptions that our family were immoral and all those things. And they have, the way they treat us left a scar that was more hurtful than I wish they never gave us anything. Hmm. But it also speaks to, I'm hearing this, it's hit me between the eyes as you're speaking, that our definition of suffering even has a Western lens to it. Yes. Um, you know, that, or, you know, how we talk about, so it's not just as Christians, we need to say, well, okay, how do I honor God in the suffering? I even have to frame suffering differently because mm -hmm. I might be even framing the concept of suffering from a Western lens. And like you had said this to me and, and you, you had said this in our talk, you said, I didn't mind being poor. And I knew lots of people who were emotionally wealthy, spiritually wealthy, you know, love wealthy. They just might've had a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. but they did have these other things. Um, and so that's, that's a, and, and really it's only the gospel that, that attempts to that address all of that at one time, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, no other worldview, whether it's Marxism or capitalism can address all of that poverty. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and it's always coming back to the kingdom view. What is most important in our lives is not being rich and wealthy and happy, but is to be right with God and yeah. to bring in glory. And, and it's easy for us to say that, but in practice, it's really, really challenging. But if we can frame suffering in the right way, we can 
be a compassionate carer. But at the same time, when we suffer, we look at the lens, oh, I'm suffering right now financially, but relationally, I'm still in a good place. I have a great support system. I have God in my life that give me this gift that no one else can give. Mm-hmm. I know he wouldn't give me chocolate with worms. I can do right, it. Right, right, right. So, so that, so. Does, that, does that go to Ling to, to when we talk about being a Christian social worker or a Christian who does social work, that, that seeking out to address people's actual poverty is what defines us, whether we're in a business as a Christian, whether we're in the pulpit as a Christian, whether we're a mom as a Christian, whatever our job is, it seems to me that's the one unifying factor that we know what man, human beings need is the gospel. Mm-hmm. We seek ways to bring that to is, is that is that how we keep our identity firm? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Because everywhere that I see, it goes back to the little thing and the big thing. I see that every person God brought into my life has a purpose. And either he strengthened, that person strengthened me or I strengthened that person. And every person has needs. They might be very well off, have fancy car and all those things. But every person has a needs that needs to be met through God. And sometimes... Uh, without awareness, God brought this person to my path, and I'm the instrument of that person, pointing them back to God. I don't meet that need, but I'm pointing back to God to meet that need. And then that need could be, if we stretch the definition, if we change the definition of suffering, then it, that person could be suffering, and that's why God brought this person to my life. And those are the little things that I can do to make a difference. Dan, it's not that you were suffering, Dan, but when Dan, when you walk by me, I make sure I pause and say hi, it's because I want to make sure that moment that God brought you into my path, that it's not because you need something and you need care. If you do, I want to make sure I'm encouraging to you that time. Well, with that because, in mind, I will probably be wandering past the second floor more often now. So <laughs> <laughs> just know you brought this upon yourself. And, and I think it was the neat thing is that I recently just got an email from the students that everybody's seen baskets with me. Uh, I don't know if you see me walking around with a snack basket. It's for <laughs> yeah, the yeah. students. Yeah. yeah. And then this one time I was before class, I had to run to the bathroom and I left the snack basket by the bathroom. And then I walk in and saw a student said hi. And then I said, how are you? She said, I'm okay. So I gave her, hey, have a snack. And she was, she looked happy and got a snack. And then she told me later, said, I would never forget. She's graduated this year. She said, I never forget that one day I was in a CPAC bathroom praying that God would give me lunch. And I didn't have lunch. Mm. And I, she didn't tell me that, that she didn't have lunch. Mm. And then you have a snack from the basket and you let me take them. Mm. So those are the little things that excite me so much and, and mm. not the big things. And that very moment that person was brought into my path and she wasn't in my class. It just, I happened to walk by her. Mm. And I want to make sure that her needs are met. At that moment, it was physical needs. But. Can I? Can Oh, go ahead, ahead, Mark. No, no. I'm... Yeah, there, there, there's a there's an interesting point I think about as we as we educate our students at OBC mm. uh, Capital uh, is that we're 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 trying to inculcate in them uh, and, and and draw in them discipleship and and a Christian outlook, and then after that, we figure out where that gets channeled, uh, whether it's in business, whether it's in mm. social work, whether it's in education, whether it's in ministry, right? Mm. Uh, and, and one of the things I've learned from Tim Keller is that I think there are people who may be called to help people with material poverty. Maybe that's business, right? And, and so a, a, but a, a, Christian, a, a Christian who's channeled into business realizes I'm not going to solve the, all the poverty problems merely by 
microloans in business. There are other types of poverty that the gospel needs to answer uh, to bring that. But what it, what it does is it, one, it gives us a sort of a winsome posture. But there's also a sense of, um, if I am a teacher, I realize people have a certain sense of poverty or that I can meet or I can address. Uh, but it, it, it really helps me refocus how I sort of think about how I'm even working with our students, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm training them and, and helping them, one, to nurture their relationship with Christ, because that's going to focus everything else out. Uh, but if I want to be, I remember Tim Keller said this, I can't take credit for this, but he said, you know, we do a disservice to our business major, our business people in the church. You know, we say, you go work for Satan and make, you know, filthy lucre mm. and give that back to the church and we'll do good things for Jesus. Mm. And, <laughs> and, um, and so, but th that what you've laid out here is there's a need for physical addressing, right? Or medicine or ventilators. And those are good things. But those alone aren't going to solve all of the poverty issues that people are addressing. Because I love this, Ling, how you talk about spiritual poverty, emotional poverty, love poverty. Um, the church can play a role in all of these, not just material. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, I love that. And, and it's not just the church. Everyday interactions that we have. Yes, yes. We can Individual address Christians. that. Yes, yeah. We can address that. And that's one thing that I said talk about as an educator in Wednesday Bible College, that I want to model to the students that no matter what field you're in, you can, you should and can behave like a cross Christ follower mm. by caring for that person in front of you, give them the attention and, and the presence. They might not even know they have needs until that moment you ask them. And then I would oftentimes find students who say, how are you? And truly ask them often the floodgates open and crying. Mm. Next thing is an hour later, but, you know, <laughs> but yeah. And I, I try very hard. I don't always do that well in the classroom to model that caring about the students and their families. I would say, how can I pray for you or your family? We do fun things. If we say, Hey, if you have a grandma or mother have birthday, call them in and we'll sing happy birthday to yeah. Yeah. So we're just caring, not just uh, just just for my job, but caring to by modeling to students how to interact with each other from a Christ, you know, as a Christ follower. That's very important to me. And you you've said this too, Ling, which I find very liberating. Hence the word. But you you say you know, and I I think you're right that the this modern young culture has got the idea they've got to if you're really going to love someone, you're going to solve all the problems, right? And, and you said something along the lines that freedom is recognizing that you, you're not going to solve all the problems. That's not what you're here to do. And, and no. you even said it in your previous statement. You said, I'm not here to fill your needs. I'm here to point you to the one that mm -hmm. fills those needs. And that, mm -hmm. you used the word freedom, which I, I found an interesting use of the phrase. Yeah, How was that freedom? Well, because it's not my responsibility to fix so-and-so's problem. It's not my, so in order to be successful in our world, I say, did you accomplish all the things in the treatment plan? <laughs> so okay. it, it this goal oriented thing and and I it's go back to the same point I kept saying God placed this person in my life for little things such as caring for them at the very moment then I'm very successful in that sense mm -hmm. if you really want to use the word success and it's very freeing that I don't have this that doesn't mean I should do things apart I do it with the best of my ability and I learn as much as I could about my field so I can give the best care but it doesn't but it, it just the, the responsibility is not on me and I use this illustration of uh, the highway road sign. I say a highway road sign is firmly planted in cement. It doesn't get blown 
flow away very easily. And that cement is God's truth in our lives. And we have those, the truth written on the roadside, but we planted, God, at that very moment, God planted us in that spot. We must not travel with the person. We stay in that spot. So every car that come by, they have to make a decision if they want to go east or west. It's not my place to tell them where they go, but I have God's truth firmly planted, hopefully on my side, that point them in going the right direction. But they, that, that decision has to be that in that on them and God's and Holy Spirit's job in guiding them, not my job. So that's freeing in a sense that yeah. I have very little task to do and I don't have to take on the whole responsibility of fixing something. And that's and very, that's yeah. very un-American. I mean, what I'm going to say is this, that when I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, it's uh, maybe this just shows I'm missing baseball, but uh, the, the, if you notice how Americans watch sports, even we look for the home run. Hmm. Uh, we look for the quarterback getting sacked. We look for the big play. Uh, in fact, most American sports, what they do to, in to increase um, viewership is to increase offense, right? We don't like defense. We don't, you know, that's why we don't watch soccer. You know, it's a, you know, <laughs> nil, nil. We're not watching nil, nil. Uh, we want the home run. We want this. And, 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 but Maybe that's why I like soccer. <laughs> yeah, I'm right, right. But, and everyone else in the world. But what, what, what you're talking about, though, is to really value, if I use the baseball analogy, the, the, the second, base per, second baseman who does the little things well and is a stable force all the way. You know, sometimes the best home run hitters, you know, they, they might only hit the ball not even a third of the time they're up. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's the, it's, it's the person. It's the Derek Jeter's of the world that, that keep baseball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're Derek Jeter, Ling. Yeah. That's, that's. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who that is uh, at that's all. A, it's good. It's good. It's You're good. cooler it's than good. he is. Let's just put yeah, it that way. Good. It's good. He's pretty darn but cool. I, I would like to say that, that, that to challenge all of us to think, what is my definition of success? You know, yes. and what's your definition of worldly success and what's your definition of spiritual success, so to speak? I don't even know that should be such a word to go together. Right. And sometimes we use that word to describe our capability. Then again, we we're pointing it away from God's glory. We keep pointing it back to our own glory. Mm. Oh, I'm successful because I, I had five people pray and accepted Jesus. <laughs> That's the <laughs> American's definition yes, of yeah. in the church, you know. Yes. But, and that's nothing wrong with, you know, people accepting Jesus as great. You know, yeah. we did never yeah. want to say no to that. But um, are we defining all those in the context of worldly sense of what is, what's it mean to be successful? And what's it mean I accomplished something? And evangelism okay shouldn't with, be a pyramid scheme. Right. right. Are we, are we yeah. okay with not accomplishing things in the worldly mm. sense? Mm. Yeah, right. Well, and if I picked one word, as you've been talking, I'm thinking just being, of being faithful. Um, that's what God calls us to do is to be faithful. And, um, and what yes. I hear from you, Ling, and I, I think what's always impressed me is your desire to be faithful uh, wherever you are in the small things and the big things. And I think you're a model to us of how we incorporate that in our lives and how we keep our citizenship in Christ. And, this is, and I, I know we're over time here, but the idea of keeping your citizenship firmly planted in Christ, but not neglecting the fact that we have a citizenship here in this world, we have responsibilities. Yes. And I, I think your ability to really appreciate, let's say, what the West and East both contribute without saying either one is the final answer, right? There's a lot of great things in the West. There's great mm -hmm. things, but ultimately they're just tools to point us back to right. Christ. And right. I'm very encouraged by that. Yeah. And our freedom is to live as citizen of the kingdom. Yeah. We're not trapped here. We're not yeah. trapped here. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It's a privilege. Well, that, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. And you've said it. I, I think you've really, you've really put a great, 
a great um, light on it, that this is every day. You said it before, and I'll, I think you've said it all through here. This is a calling. Every day is a calling. And I think that's a new reference point to say, I wake up saying, how is this going to work out for me? Is it to say, every morning I wake up, I am now called to glorify God in this space where I am. So how am I going to do that next? And I, mm-hmm. I think that's very liberating. I agree. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's our hour. I know we try not to get too far yeah. over, and we would ask for questions, but um, it looks like we don't have at least any online viewers at the moment. No, but we, we've grilled Ling pretty hard for an hour here, so yeah. yeah. Oh, it's been a it's real been pleasure. pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Oh, same here. I'm very grateful for you, Ling. Very grateful. Oh, same here. I appreciate you both very much. Well, thank you very much. And then uh, for welcome. those listening, we're coming on next week. Uh, do we have an announcement yet, Mark, about who we have? Uh, we do not. It's a mystery guest. So mystery guest on yes. the 29th, uh, we have Jail Chambers. Yes. Um, who teaches on our Philadelphia campus, and he'll be talking about COVID, crisis, finding Christ, race, and urban issues. Um, so he'll be bringing his experiences. It's really exciting. He's a really, really vibrant, exciting guy. So look forward to that. I would time. like to lock down a couple students uh, from LBC and hear from them and how they're handling yeah. uh, the crisis and seeking God in the whirlwind. Um, I think we've spoken to, I think that's what we're hoping for for next week. Um, but we, we've, yeah, so we've, we've heard, our school has heard from a lot of the students. Um, and how they're coping sort of with their education, uh, but also just how they're coping with some of these other uh, areas. And I think there's some insight that we can all, as the body of Christ, um, glean from each other. So not yeah. just uh, geographic and, uh, and subject uh, specialty, but maybe uh, by age. Yeah, yeah. So. Great. Great, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ling. Really loved it. You're welcome. You're welcome.